Hi. See you. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. We are with Eric Wade today, and we are going to talk about lust. Of course, that needs a bit of context, which he will provide. But first, Eric, may I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, of course. And thank you so much for having me. My name is Eric Wade. I'm a visiting researcher at the University of Bonn right now. I got my PhD from Rutgers University in 2018. And I'm a medievalist working on the intersections of race and sexuality and the global origins of early medieval English ideas about sex and race. Let me start off by asking you, what the heck is lust? <laughs> I mean, I, it's a really difficult question, right? It is. In a kind of simplistic way, lust is a word of Germanic origin that comes from the very earliest English documents. It's a word that used to mean basically anything that we could take pleasure in, any kind of joys or pleasures, any thing that made you happy was a kind of lust. Right. And it's only over time, right, and with the influence of Christianity and Catholicism that it's really narrowed to something that we think of as sexual. And this is one of the difficulties when you're talking about a kind of history of sexuality, that the terms that we use, the categories that we use are so context-dependent. Mm. And a category like lust our modern understanding of it can't really be imported back to the European Middle Ages. Right. So we are mainly talking about lust today because your book project under construction is called Lust in Translation. So the book project is looking at the earliest Old English literature, starting in the 600s onward. What I'm looking at is really how early English authors, authors often who are writing before a country called England really existed, how these authors talked about sex and lust. And one of the things that I'm realizing is that when they did this, they often did it in political contexts. That is to say that really from like the beginnings of English literature onward, Sex wasn't something that was imagined to be like an entirely personal matter, a matter of like individual identity. It was politicized. It was used for racial purposes, for nationalistic purposes. I mean, we think now of sex scandals or ideas about the treatment of women, about sexuality as being like a modern thing to politicize. But what I've actually realized is that it seems like this has been part of English literature from its very beginnings. Right. And so what I see this project as doing is connecting to a set of modern theorists. So I'm thinking of people like 
Edward Said, mm. but people who sort of followed in his wake, Joseph Boone, Ghassan Moussaoui, Al-Jatipuri, Joseph Massad, all of these people who are looking at the ways in which the modern West, particularly the modern Anglophone world, has used sexuality and has used claims about like group ideas about sexuality to differentiate between us and them. Ideas about sexuality have been, for example, at the root of modern Orientalism. And what I'm sort of seeing is that this is, in fact, a process that's been going on as far back as we can find in surviving English literature. So you have... English kings who are saying the English are superior, the English deserve to command the British Isles because these other groups have much more sinful ideas about sexuality, or they treat women in a particular kind of way. And we, on the other hand, we English don't do this. And you can see this kind of thing up until the modern day. You can think about the U.S. invasion of Iraq, for example, and this idea that we have to save their women and all of these ideas that we can differentiate between groups based on their sexual practices. And what I'm arguing is that this actually goes back to the very, very earliest texts. We can trace this back really to the 600s in English, at least. I'm wondering how you are reading lust as theme, let's say, across generic divides, the heroic and the elegiac. How does it operate? This is a really good question. I mean, Old English literature has often been characterized as uninterested in sexuality. Some people have described it as sort of essentially sexless. And I think that those characterizations are born out of a kind of modern idea about the early medieval English and modern kind of racial ideas. I mean, you have scholars in the the 70s and 80s saying things like their Germanic mind was essentially asexual. And so I think that we are still coming to terms with sort of shedding these racialized ideas about sexuality in the field. And re-evaluating all of these genres with new eyes. And I think that when we take a look at a lot of these texts, there is, for example, in heroic literature in this period, not a massive amount of sexuality. Like if you compare it to Old Norse literature at the same time, which is filled with incest, which is filled with all kinds of often horrific sexual episodes, Old English literature does look a lot less. It does look like there's a lot less sex. But once you turn away from this canon of heroic texts, there's actually a huge amount of interest happening in Old English, but it's happening in other genres. And it's often happening in theological texts. It's often happening in political texts, in biographies of kings, The places that we might, as literary scholars, expect to find it aren't the places where it's actually residing, because it seems like it's doing different work. Like, there's less poems about romance or love stories or things like this, but there are huge ongoing conversations that are being had in other genres about 
let's say, what does it mean if the king of England isn't married? What does it mean if the ruling class is having extramarital affairs? And so the place to find sexuality, I think, is not necessarily in the core of heroic literary texts, but it's in texts that we might think of as non-literary, sort of political texts. It's in texts like riddles. Mm. There's an enormous amount of Old English riddles composed and written down by monks that are incredibly graphically sexual. So it's really at the outskirts of what we think of as the Old English literary canon that the sexual seems to reside. Right. So my next question is, how do we use lust? What I'm really sort of wondering is how you're using lust to engage with debates in medieval studies, of course, but also more popular themes like love, for example, and courtly love. This is a period that is traditionally considered to be before the rise of, say, courtly love. And there's not a lot of literature from this period that's really explicitly interested in love. I'm looking at this very narrow set of interests and intersections between like lust and politics, lust and racialization, lust and nationalism. But I think that one of the things that's so interesting about looking at lust in this period is that when English authors in the first millennium are thinking about sex, they're often thinking about sex using non-English text, using non-English genres. So almost every instance that I'm talking about, when they're talking about sex, they're talking about sex either in an adaptation or a translation of a non-English text, a text from the continent, a text from Iberia, a text from the Mediterranean, or they're adapting a kind of non-English literary genre. A lot of these riddles are drawn, for example, from a North African riddle tradition. And so part of this is that the interest in sex seems to be happening at this kind of fulcrum between England coming to terms and creating its own national identity, but also participating in this sort of wide global tradition. And so for me, at least, using sex, using lust in this book project is a way of kind of talking about how the very sort of earliest English literature was actually intensely globalized. It was participating in this huge global tradition. And we can see influences in and concerns with texts and theories coming from what's now Turkey and Syria, as I said, North African literary traditions, a huge amount of stuff coming out of Iberia, And so I think that using sexuality in early medieval English literature is a way not only to think about politicization and racialization, but it's a way to really get a handle on how much the very earliest English authors are actually not sort of creating English literature out of nothing, but they're actually pulling on this massive globalized set of literature theology, philosophy, what have you. So in the context of this kind of global origin story of Old English literature, which has long been mistakenly seen as something that is insular in some ways, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also speaking to the importance of 
old English texts and medieval historical figures in the construction of nationalisms and exceptionalisms. Let me ask you my final question, which is, how will lust save the world? <laughs> I mean, I... It feels sort of grandiose to suggest that, like, my personal research is going to change the world in some sort of way. I think that if anything, what I'm hoping my work will illustrate is the extent to which debates about what we think of as the private, as the domestic, have been politicized and racialized from the very earliest periods onward. So that when we think about the Anglophone world and we think about the kinds of ideas that have been spread by imperialism and colonialism nowadays, I have to remember that it's coming from a canon that has, from its earliest surviving moments, used sexuality as a form of racialization. And that has built this enormous hundreds of years long tradition of, if we don't want to use the word orientalism, certainly a kind of othering at very least. One that's built on talking about sexual practices, talking about gender, that's built on politicizing the sexual and the domestic. So I think of, for example, in your episode with Jay Shellett, mm. this idea of 9-11 and the family, I mean, that makes complete sense in this long tradition. I mean, that's the way Anglophone literature has operated as long as we can tell. One of the things that I'm sort of working against is this tendency, particularly in medieval studies, to see themselves as kind of depoliticized, right. to see all of these things as anachronistic concerns and as concerns that people are projecting into texts. And I think that there's an incredible opportunity for medieval studies, for pre-modernists, for people working on historical literature to really talk about the ways in which the modern systems of power, modern systems of oppression and discrimination have really long histories. Right. And to illustrate the ways in which anti-Blackness or homophobia are difficult to shake off because these things have been part of the literatures that became imperial literatures for yeah. for millennia, really. Yeah. So that's not really a positive, like, how can we save the world kind of answer. <laughs> no, but that's okay. This question has always been absolutely to the interpretation of the guest. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming to High Theory and talking to us about lust and its many, many connotations and origins. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.